I think history looks back at Aussie with perhaps a kinder eye than you would imagine. Great to have you along, listeners, for another week of Spurs Nostalgia as our chronological descent through the seasons penetrates the first half of the 1990s in what is now week nine of the project. Peter, Sim, you've both been here with me over the webwave since the beginning when Ricky joined us to analyse the current incomplete campaign on 22nd of March. It's been so enjoyable, but Peter first and then Sim, what have you found most challenging about doing this project? It's just a fading memory of an old man. <laughs> as, as, we've descended, as we've descended into the what we've what we've been calling the turgid years, I suppose, I've kind of like found it really quite hard to recall specific games. Somehow the nineties seem to be the players and the kit and the atmosphere seem to have a sort of a drabness about it, personified by those baggy shirts with the Hewlett Packard blazer pony. Sim, what about yourself? Uh, well, I'm quite lucky that I've got you guys to kind of fill in the blanks and point out anything that's obvious. But I suppose if I'm doing the research, I'm I'm just worried that I'm going to completely miss out something really, really important. Like this season we're about to do, the points deduction, I, this is like nothing I've ever heard of before. And it's only just really quite lucky that I kind of stumbled across it. So I suppose the fear of maybe missing something like that. But it's all a great education. It's quite educational for you, I was going to say, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, it must be. Many thanks again to Stephen Slade for Thursday's excellent show. We wish Steve all the best in the future and sincerely hope that his cancer treatment can begin swiftly. Today, the turn of another South East London, Lily White, who's followed Spurs all his life, been a season ticket for most of his life as well, season holder, but been able to balance the stress of that hobby with the pleasure of fulfilling his true vocation for a living. Welcome aboard the Whitey One crew, highly accomplished actor, director and very good friend of all three of us, James Hillier. James, how are you, mate? Very well. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Great. Good. How's lockdown for you guys? It's good, yeah. We're busy. This morning, Albert gets off the trampoline. Albert's our second son. He gets off the trampoline after doing a 26-hour marathon, staying on there, raising money for NHS Heroes. So that's fantastic. That's, that's been great fun, actually. Great fun sleeping in the garden last night with him. I enjoyed that. Mm. Wow. <laughs> yeah, hanging out with wildlife. But yeah, it's all right. Um, and uh, yeah. and yeah, sort of. I think we're quite settled now, actually, into a routine. Uh, that's good. Mm. Uh, so, James, obviously, obviously, knowing about your great portfolio of television and theatre work, I know that you won't feel an ounce of pressure when I say that your debut on Y One has been long awaited and eagerly anticipated. And as an actor and director, you must be climbing the walls to get back to your passion. How, how do you find the last past couple of months not being able to do any work? It is tough because I guess what you realise is that being an actor or a director is a people game. So you, you can't do it without people. And this is the first time that anything like this has really happened. Even in the war, plays would go on and, and stuff was still being made. So it is difficult. And in fact, I was due to go into rehearsals for a show just as lockdown happens. But we're very lucky that's going to happen as soon as everything's lifted there's no alternative right now. There's there's some voice work and, and radio stuff out there, but there's lots of reading. And I'm, I'm joining the 
the army of homeschooling parents, which is yes. a revelation in itself. <laughs> It's quite tough. But, but James, obviously, you know, you haven't had much work. And I just want to point out that you won't be getting paid for this podcast, by the way. I'll have my agent on to you. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Great to have you on anyway. And Sim, uh, Sim, you're, you're the king of Spurs research in this project. But I think the piece of research you found on James and our beloved Spurs is your best yet. Can you share it with the listeners, please? That's very kind of you, Ian. Yeah, this is this is pretty... I think this is pretty interesting. I'm glad to, to hear that you think so as well. Basically, listeners, James played a character in EastEnders. If you're, if you're a watcher of that show, you might remember him. A character called Damien, who was engaged to Rita Simons, now-deceased character, Roxy Mitchell. But Rita Simons is actually the niece of Alan Sugar, who, of course, owned Tottenham in the 1990s, and we've talked a lot about him in this podcast. I thought that possibly sets you up for this podcast nicely, in a strange kind of way, James. Mate, I didn't even know that at the time when I was working with her. If I'd known that, I would have tapped her up for some tickets. Super tenuous, super tenuous. What was she like, James? She was a lot of fun. Very energetic. Mm. I joined just as her and Samantha Womack were starting. And yeah, they were great fun to be around. It was a good show to be on. Anyway, guys, on to season 1994-95. Club legend Osvaldo Ardiles began the season as manager, but was under pressure from day one after a 15th place finish and a total of just 45 premiership points the previous season. We started the season well with three wins in our first four matches but the form dropped this form dropped off as early September and by late October we'd fallen to 13th following a 5-2 mauling at Manchester City's main road and a League Cup humiliation four days later to Knox County. Peter, a lot was made at the time and has been made since about Aussie's gung-ho approach. How did you feel about Aussie's management of the team and was he a dead man walking at the start of the 1994-95 season? Yeah, well, if you think about it, like if he's finished 15th the previous season, you know, he's going to have sort of eyes on him, isn't he, at the start of the season. Got to hit the ground running. I don't know if you would say dead man walking, but definitely the pressure was on, pressure was on him. I think, in hindsight, his philosophy of playing that really attacking style seems to have been maybe ahead of its time and more progressive than most. I mean, uh, Venables had moved us out of the 4-4-2 sort of mentality and... When you look at the way teams like City play now, yes, there were defensive frailties, but I think history looks back at Aussie with perhaps a kinder eye than you would imagine. Pressure was definitely on him at the time. James, do you feel the same? Because, you know, he's, I think he was ahead of his time of his football, James, but do you think if he'd have had a better defence at the time, he may have just pulled this off? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think if you look at the way he set up that team, it's not dissimilar to what we've had in recent years with that sort of with desk and that very attacking formation but what one of the things that i always sort of feel that is very much part of the modern game is the overall responsibility of the players on the pitch and things like fitness and diet and all of that goes a a long way into making a team that work very hard and i think possibly back then there hadn't been quite the revolution in football that meant that players felt they had to work hard. So if you were an attacker, you attacked. And I don't think he asked those players up front to take any responsibility. If you look at the team now, how often do we see Harry Kane back in our own box clearing the ball? And even, I mean, sometimes even Deli Ali might make a tackle, although obviously quite rarely. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think if he could have injected some of that 
mentality into those five players who are no doubt are brilliantly expressive players and that's what he allowed them to do be expressive I think it would have seen a very different outcome yeah totally agree totally some good points there and so at the start of the season though you know he'd been a terrible season the season before and then Sim if you could just you know tell us what transfers came in um, in the summer that season the transfers were pretty exciting weren't they they were they were very much inspired by the 94 World Cup where in particular Romania had done quite well and Obviously, uh, Jurgen Klinsmann was... I'm, I'm not totally sure, was Jurgen Klinsmann a world superstar at the time when he came in? World Cup winner. Yes. And he'd also had lots of headlines around him, hadn't he? Because he was sort of famous for diving. So he was kind of... He was also, as well as being famous, he was sort of notorious. Yeah. So, yeah, Steve, yeah. Steve Slade was talking about him teaching them all to dive, didn't he? And just having these yeah. incredible... Yeah. <laughs> these, these like amazing... Um, <laughs> skills and stuff I like that. I love the idea of that. That's yeah. great. But yeah, he was he was the big the big big one. Um he came from Monaco for two million and then the two Romanian guys, Ili Dimitrescu and Chica Popescu came in for two and a half million and three million respectively. Uh, we also had that Intertoto Cup defender Owen Cole came in from Enfield <coughs> FC in July, but it was the August transfers that really kind of stole the headlines. Peter, how did you sort of feel going into that season? I mean that they were some best signings I think of a summer I think we've ever had, apart yeah, from Ardiles yeah. and uh, Villa, possibly. Famously, Klinsmann said that he was going to enrol his entire family into a diving school. So he sort of like embraced the whole diving it, thing at the time, which is great, you know, as, yeah. as, as we all should oh, good in that I, Sheffield Wednesday game. And Sim, who, what players uh, went out that season? Yeah, so striker Andy Gray went to Marbella. I didn't actually know they had a football team, but yeah, he went there. Steve Sedgley was quite a good servant to the club, wasn't he? He went to Ipswich. Jeff Minton, a young player, another young player who Steve Slade said he was surprised he actually didn't kind of go on to make it a little bit bigger. He went out and um, so did Glenn Hurst, who is a striker. I'm not sure if any of you guys remember him. Um, I don't think no. he played very much, but he actually went on to have a really good career in the kind of League One and League Two. I was looking at his stats and he was scoring a lot of goals. So he went on to have an all right career. But the, I think the big departure was... Vinny Samways, who went to Everton for two million and sort of fizzled out a little bit. It didn't work out for him there, did it? Mm. Yeah, he didn't. Um, James, what's your thoughts on Vinny Samways? By then, I think you were kind of not bothered about seeing him go. Totally Um, agree. I think I think it's a great point, James, because I think he'd done his time at Spurs. I think he'd come a youngster come through. He's a lovely technical football, though, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was good to watch, and on the ball, he was really nice, but. I do think sometimes Tottenham have a tendency to hang on to people a little bit, don't they? Or back then, there was you kind of create an emotional connection with those players, and, and he'd been around for a while. The Klinsman thing, as a kid, that was like a massive, massive moment, him coming in. Because I remember at the time feeling like Spurs didn't have that special player, that person who you wanted to go and watch. Because yeah. the, the thing that always stood out for me at, at Tottenham was that there was always someone who really inspired you. There was the Hoddles or the Gascoigne's or the Linkers. And yeah, Sheringham was there, but he wasn't necessarily a player that you would go and see just for what's he going to do. But when Klinsman turned up, and certainly after that first game at Sheffield Wednesday, you were just thinking, "There's, a, I'll go and watch this game because of him. And I, that, that made a huge difference, I think, to the way Tottenham felt. It felt like Tottenham were back. To a certain degree, mm. it was a box office. It was a yeah, box totally. Office. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Pete. Yeah, totally agree. And we actually spent about was it eight, eight odd million, eight odd million that season. 
And I'm just going to give you some context, as we normally do. The other clubs spend it. Arsenal only spent a million, Everton three million, Liverpool nine, West Ham five million, Blackburn seven million. They went on to win the league that year. Leeds three million, Chelsea five, Forest six million, Newcastle eight million. We spent big that season, so no one could accuse Sugar, as we have done a lot over the years, of not splashing the cash, Peter, can we this no, season? No, no um, I mean, as I said, like, the, the, the people that came in, they did have you licking your lips. How much did you say Blackburn spent? Blackburn spent seven million. So the eventual t- title winners, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought, yeah. yeah, he kind of pushed the boat, seemed to push the boat out that season. Why do you think that was? Because it's not, it wasn't typical, was it, of Sugar to do that? Why did they do that that year? I think it had a lot to do with, um, I mean, Ian's going to go into it in a bit more detail in a bit, but it might have had a lot to do with the potential points deduction that we had hanging over us, because at, at the time of before the season started, we thought we were losing 12 points, and the fact that yeah. we'd finished so badly the last season, and you know, I mean, 12 point, you minus 12 points from what was a really bad performance the season before, you're looking at real relegation danger, so I think that might have actually had a lot to do with it. Mm. I think it's a great point, Tim. I actually think he sort of put his business head on and thought he's got to throw a bit of money at this, otherwise, you know, his investment could go completely down the drain. I mean, we mm. started that season with these fines. We had 40 charges from the inland revenue of malpractice. And most of these charges were for transfers in late 80s. And the key transfer were three players central to it Mitchell Thomas, Chris Fairclough, and Paul Allen. So for Mitchell Thomas and Chris Fairclough, when they joined, they were paid a loan, which they never paid back, both of them. And Paul Allen was given some type of ex gratia payment, which is basically a bung in layman's terms. And that was under the Irving Scholar regime. And the great thing was, Sugar, when he sort of came in, he actually came in and held his hands up. You know, honesty is the best policy. And even though, you know... We that was possibly why we did not get relegated because Swindon a few years earlier they did exactly the same they were they had malpractices in transfer deals and they were relegated two divisions so the fact that we sort of come clean possibly Sugar's not given as much credit for that I don't know what you Peter you and James might remember that I mean he was kind of like straight playing things by the book wasn't he we shall find out later about the feud between him and Venables was that all rooted in that as well I think. Yeah, just going back to the context of that for the younger listeners, we had a 12-point deduction, we were thrown out of the FA Cup and we had a £600,000 fine. But Alan Sugar was actually brilliant because he appealed against this. He was incandescent with rage and you know, he won the appeal in December 94. The FA said, well, you're going to have six points deducted, you're still out of the FA Cup and they increased the fine to £1.5 million. But Sugar was still furious with it. You know, he'd come clean. It was a previous regime. And then on the second appeal, Sugar won the appeal again. So all our points deduction was taken away. We were put back in the FA Cup, but the fine was still 1.5 million. But, you know, 1.5 million was pretty... It's a chunky fine then, but a small price to pay, don't you think, James? Absolutely. And he did the right thing to pursue that because I think wasn't it in the end that it was sort of seen to be not within the law to actually make a points deduction they could do the fine but actually the points deduction wasn't actually legally didn't stand that, up that I think. previously when we got went down to the second division in the late 70s they bounced straight back but it was a very different kind of market then wasn't it and especially like ian you're pointing out like he thinks of it as a business that's a huge drop in your stock isn't it sure yeah yeah so yeah. He did, he did the right thing. huge sure. 
Sim, can we can you give us some key facts for the season and we'll start on with the Premier League then? Yeah, so we finished seventh in what was the FA Carling Premiership at the time for sponsorship reasons. This was the third season, would have been the third season of the Premier League and it was actually the last season where there were 22 teams in the Premier League. So um, it was a 40, 42 game season, was it? Yeah, 42, yeah. 42. Yeah, yeah. so we finished 7th in the league. Aussie was gone by the 1st of November and QPR manager Jerry Francis came in on the 15th of November. It took him a little while to get going, but then we went on a great run after he after he came in and Perriman was the caretaker in between the two. I just want to sort of go back a bit to our early start, Sim, because we won three out of our first four, didn't we? Yeah, we did. I mean, I don't know how you guys felt at the time, but you mentioned the Sheffield Wednesday game and the Klinsman dive. And that was a real, a real thrilling four-three, four-three win. And we scored a lot of goals at the start of that season. We won three out of the first four, won the first two. Klinsman had three out of the first two games, and you know we lost to United in the third game. But then we beat Ipswich away, and I think Ian, you said you were there, and you said it was just a perfect game of football. Yeah, I actually went to that game. Yeah, I remember it was a midweek game and in August. Yeah, and I went to the away game, got the train down there. You know, I, everyone wanted to see Spurs at the time, and I remember. I remember going, getting to Ipswich and there was thousands of Spurs fans, not only in our bit, but also all around the ground because I think everyone just wanted to see the entertainers. And I just think that game was just brilliant. I mean, we absolutely run right. The second goal was a breakaway from our defence, Anderton, Sheringham, Klinsman, then Dumitrescu. It was just from end to end. I mean, it was exciting times, wasn't it, Peter? Do you remember yeah. watching them? They were just yeah. fantastic, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, I could, I could scroll back to the previous, the, the, the Sheffield Wednesday game. I was, I'd been up in Derby visiting my mum, not that far away from Sheffield, and I remember watching the uh, choreographed dives as that goal went <laughs> in, and they all sort of dived, like five of them. That was just it's a moment that's etched into my memory. Oh, Jack? James, what was, what was your memories of those sort of uh, first four games? It was a very exciting time, wasn't it, to be a Spurs fan? Yeah, it's the same as you guys. It was really exciting to have Spurs back, if you like. There was a real feeling of hope that our dealies, yes, the last season hadn't gone right, but what he needed was the right players to do this thing that he wanted to do. And these were the guys that could do it. And with those five, sharing a Manston, Barnby, Klinsman and Dumitrescu, he could set the world on fire. And... That first game and that dive, you just thought, wow, this is it. We're going to do it. And Spurs will be yeah. back. And then, yeah, it didn't last so long. And after this Ipswich game, we lost three on the trot, as Sim said. Yeah. Do you think, James, that the manage, other managers found us out a little bit and knew how to play against us? Yeah, I think that's it. And it was obvious that we had a, such a frail defence. And they, they were quite young at the time. I think Mavert wasn't playing much anymore, was he? And no. So you had a young Sol Campbell back there and, and very inexperienced. And who was playing the sort of midfield holding role? Was it, was no one. Nobody. <laughs> we didn't have <laughs> But, I mean, the, it wasn't really, there wasn't one, was there? And no. we were quite easy to, quite yeah, easy to get right. past, really. And maybe it's Calderwood played in there a bit. You're right. We got found out and we just needed shoring up. But it was for that sort of five minutes... It was really exciting and it felt like, here we go, this is going to be, we're going to set the world on fire because it carried that energy of the World Cup as well. Yeah. Here were players that had been very successful and it felt like you were sort of riding that wave. Sim, can you take us through to when, 
Ozzy was sacked and sort of what are the what, what happened before he got sacked, please? Yeah, the league cup kind of intertwines into it quite integrally as well. Um, so yeah, as you as you mentioned, Ian, we lost three in a row after that initial good start. Uh, we got beat at home by Southampton, lost away at Leicester, but then we got beat four-one at home by Nottingham Forest, which is a really. I mean, if we have been found out, then we've been found out in a bad way because that's a pretty damaging defeat. And you know, he was under a lot of pressure at that point. November is the sacking month. It is, yeah. We got absolutely thumped at um, Division One, Notts County, didn't we? In yeah. in the League Cup, and before that, there was a five-two defeat at Man City. And yeah. you know, J- James asked the question earlier: who was playing? Who was kind of playing the holy role? I think on that day, Popescu did, but the kind of midfield and it like he was. When I look back at the team that day, it was he was in there as a midfielder, but the midfield and the attack was Popescu, Dimitrescu, Barnby, Dazelle, Sheringham, and Klinsman. That just sounds like a bunch of attacking midfielders, and then a centre a centre back thrown in the midfield. Really, it's a lack of balance. <laughs> a lack of balance in that midfield it just needed to be tweaked a bit like as James said to have people tracking back I don't think that was in the mentality of those particular players yeah also the formation wasn't it pretty much Klinsman and Sheringman up front together so you had like a two yeah and whereas now we sort of play more that one don't we which enables all those runners to come in behind and it just sort of felt like it was it was sort of all, all a bit overwhelmed in the box there up front yeah, there was um, Colin Calderwood um, once actually made this a quote. He said, Gaffer, this is the RD, there's Gaffer. You are always talking about the famous five all the time. What about the six? Yeah. So I think that sort of says <laughs> there was a little bit, you know, it's all about these famous five and the rest of them just crack on and just do what you can, try and, you know, try and not leak as many goals. And I think that's Calderwood possibly summed it up. There was a bit of distress in the players' sim, wouldn't you say that? Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, if like one half of the team is effectively getting forgotten about tactically, then you know you you can only really point to a degree of tactical naivety. I'm afraid. I agree. And then Sim, so he got fired. We beat West Ham after the Notts County debacle in the League Cup, but then he got fired ironically by Alan Sugar. And I, I was wondering though if he does point his finger and say you're fired. I think that's the child in me, though. It's very predictable. <laughs> it's um, and I like it. I, I actually read that Sugar was really mortified that he had to sack Ozzy, which sort of says quite a lot about Ozzy, I think, and his Spurs history, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, loved by the supporters, you know, the history, you know, going back to that 81 Cup final. And, yeah, it's always hard, you know. We've got a hero in there, and sometimes you have to pull the trigger. And, I, yeah, I, I, I just thought he might have struggled with that. Even yeah. being the businessman that he is, he knew that it wasn't working. Obviously, he got fired, and a few days later, Jerry Francis came in. Now, Jerry Francis was, was really highly regarded at the time, James. He was actually even interviewed for the England job. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, Do you, what, what, was your, what was your thoughts of Francis when he came in? Do you feel disappointed? Because it was quite a, safe, you know, quite a safe bet for us, I think. Yeah, I think that's kind of the feeling was more than anything else was about that safeness. He'd sort of been at QPR. I don't know. I'm not a massive, not a massive lover of QPR. Quarter pound of rubbish. So I just, I, I sort of, it felt, in some ways, it felt like a, a bit of a move backwards because you're losing that excitement and the energy and the, and the box office thing that Pete talked about. But I think everyone at the same time was quite realistic about it. And yeah, he's a, he's a very, very steady hand. And, and as you see, like, 
the rest of the season, what he did was quite amazing, really, the way he kind of steadied the ship. Yeah, it was really good, actually, because Sugar actually wanted Francis as coach, and he wanted this was his, he wanted Pleat to be director of football, but when he put that to Jerry Francis, Jerry Francis says, no, just give the job to David, and walked out, and then Sugar sort of came back and uh, changed his mind, Peter, which yeah, yeah, interesting. We mentioned that maybe Hoddle might have been undermined by having Pleat meddling around in the background. Maybe Jerry Francis just wanted to be his own man and would not have worked under that particular regime. It was a steadying of the ship that was needed at the time. Yeah, and James, when Francis took over, it was said that he was appalled at the players' fitness and levels of organisation in the team. Do you remember that he introduced this running Tuesday where they didn't touch the ball, they just ran all day Tuesday? Do you, do you think that was needed at the time? Yeah, that was, wasn't it? I mean, that's quite revolutionary in some ways for a British English manager to be doing that because it was sort of more foreign managers that brought that sort of thinking in for us, wasn't it? Although, obviously, Klinsman's in the team. So he's, from what I hear from listening to what Steve was saying the other day on your podcast, he was sort of very driven with diet and things like that. So it is surprising how those top teams could easily at this point in time let things slip. But it was, yeah, yeah, really clearly needed. Yeah, this is pre-Wenger. Clearly well. needs, you're right. It's pre-Wenger, isn't it, with those yeah. dietary things coming in? No, you're right. So Jerry Francis came in, and Sim, could you just sort of give us how, how well he started with us? Yeah, I mean, he didn't actually win any of his first four games, and maybe that's just, the like James talked about, the, the fitness and all that. Maybe he just needed that little transition period to get some ideas across, I don't know. But we lost to Blackburn in his first game, and 4-3 at home to Aston Villa, so we actually lost his first two. But the Villa game was actually, that was the last defeat before a run of 10 without a defeat. We drew at home to Chelsea 0-0 and 1-1 at Anfield. But then after that, we went on a really good run, which, as I said, started with the Villa game. And we didn't lose for 10. His first win was a 4-2 home win against Newcastle. And Sheringham scored a hat-trick in that game. He actually won Manager of the Month for us in uh, December. So, you know, I, I remember at the time being quite excited by him, Peter. Did you? Yeah, it certainly turned things around, you know, it was in a results-orientated kind of game, and, you know, you, you see the results turning around, yeah, you know, at the time I thought, well, it's what we needed, and, yeah, you could see the improvement in, that was happening around uh, Francis. At the time, Peter, the main aim was for us to get into um, the UEFA Cup, and, you know, we, we were in a really, really good position there, because from the Jan January the 1st, we were 6th or 7th for the rest of the season. So we were really consistent, Sim. I think that says in our results, doesn't it? The results are brilliant. Six wins out of eight after that Newcastle game. And that included a 1-0 win at home to Arsenal, which is always a, a great result to get. That was on the 2nd of January. Chico Popescu, 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 yeah, yeah. Popescu yeah. winner. I'm just going to give you some stats of when Francis took over, James. He had, yeah. he had 29 league games in charge. Mm. He lost six. He won 11, but he drew 12. Which well, why, why do you think we drew so, so many games? Well, he stopped, we stopped letting in goals, didn't we? So that seemed to be what his priority was. Not so many goals on the pitch. But yeah, clearly he was making it a priority, wasn't he, to get us across the line. And that's what that sort of manager, that sort of manager who's looking to steady the ship, that's what they're always going to do. They're always going to come in and go, look, if we can stop them scoring, then we might stand a chance. And I guess with those players up front, you're going to pick up a goal here and there. Yeah, I mean, Sim, can you give us the stats of the goals, please? Just on what James said about tightening up the defence, that's spot on. There was a period between 17th of December and the Arsenal game where we didn't concede for five games. 
And even then, when we did concede in games, we were only conceding one. We didn't concede more than one goal for coming up to about 10 games. If I can compare that to like what I've seen in my time, it sounds a bit like when Harry came in in 2008. And, you know, we were shipping goals and we were a bit broken after the Ramos thing just had not worked out. And we were just winning loads of games 1-0 in that season. And that's, I suppose, I could probably compare it to that in, in my time, something that I've seen. Making it hard to beat, yeah. I think, was this first priority. Was hence all the draws. Yeah, but Klinsman got 30 goals I mean, um, in all comps, yeah. Amazing. I'm, I'm really impressed by the Klinsman strike rate. 30 goals. 50 games he played or something? Yeah, that's yeah he did, yeah. correct. Incredible. Klinsman also got 10 assists. Anderson got 14 assists wow. that season. It's quite impressive. So, Sim, we ended up finishing seventh, but we were about 11 points off the UEFA Cup qualifying where Leeds got in there. So, I think from where we were, guys, I think we can sort of say the Premier League, to finish seventh, wasn't bad in the end. Would you agree, James? Yeah, I mean, that was... A- decent finish to that season wasn't it and you certainly felt when you got to the end of that season with someone smart like Francis like he's a real he's a real thinker about the game and a really great coach you're thinking with this team going forward there's a really good chance for them in sort of the next year and what have you Sim can you tell us about the League Cup please first and then we'll go on to the FA Cup a competition which we shouldn't really have been in the League Cup was pretty much the final straw for our dealers won it the second round that we played in that just sums up what our side sounded like at the start of that season we beat Watford 6-3 in the first game of the League Cup in the second round 6-3 away they must have been in Division 1 and we lost the second leg at home 3-2 meaning we won it 8-6 on aggregate yeah sums it up Sim <laughs> yeah and then Notts County away 3-0 26th of October that was straight after the Man City game where we got destroyed 5-2 and I think the West Ham game was almost, it sounded like a bit of a wave goodbye. And in a good way as well. But, you know, it sounded like the writing was on the wall a little bit for our dealers. The FA Cup, we actually played at Altrincham in the third round. Having been, I think we were reinstated on the 9th of December when it was all cleared. Because we did start the Premier League season with, up until the 9th of December, I think we were still six points minus off of our total. But by the 9th of December, it was all quashed and... We were back in the FA Cup. So we beat Altrincham in the third round at the lane. We won 4-1 at Sunderland in the round after, in the fourth round. Uh, we drew with Southampton in the fifth round. And that was, yeah, the 1-1 at home. And then we won it 6-2 when Ronnie Rosenthal scored that famous hat-trick. And we scored four goals in extra time. Do you guys remember that game? That Southampton game, we were 2-0 down quite early. And then suddenly they brought Ronnie on at half-time. And, you know, I've said before on the podcast, Ronnie never had the ball under control for me. He was like a like a whirling dervish, he was. Yeah, no. And um, suddenly he scored two quick goals, including an absolute one, which bent like unbelievable. I, I mean, I've never seen that. anything like it. He scored two good goals. And then, um, yeah, we went to extra time and then he scored pretty much early in extra time for his hat-trick. And then we just we caught them on the break three times. Peter, do you remember yeah, any of those goals? It yeah, was yeah, unbelievable. I remember, I remember one that he bent in like, Guess it's kind of things start to sort of come flooding back. I do remember like one of the goals from range, and I thought, "Wow!" But it's, it's just one of those really yeah. unpredictable guys. It's just, amusing yeah. aside, um, in the third round, there was a commentator who had sort of like commented that Spurs were going to keep their regular lineup, whereas our opponents were going to be altering them. 
Hey. <laughs> you see what he did there? They were in the conference, uh, weren't they? What what a day out for them! Conference to to the lane. Yeah. I like that, Peter. Very, very music. But then, then that took us through to Liverpool away, which was unbelievable. Because I remember they, it, this was such a big game for us because we hadn't really done well in the Cups. And this was, you know, the sixth round. And they, they actually beamed the game back to White Hart Lane because it wasn't live on TV. So I remember going. But I remember that day we beat Liverpool at Anfield. And, you know, they were decent at the time. And we were just fluent. We were vibrant. I mean, that Anderton and Howes were just fantastic that day. And Teddy Sheridan scored a brilliant goal. I just felt, again, I felt, I felt a little bit of a crest of the way for that FA Cup. And I think a lot of people felt that it was our destiny to win it because we'd been thrown out of it. Did you mm. feel that, James? Yeah, definitely. It was a real surprise when we got knocked out in that semi-final. Certainly after you beat Liverpool, you kind of you feel like, right, this is it. We're on our way. And the players all kind of, you could see they believed in it. They totally believed in it. We got hammered at Ellen Road. I mean... Uh, uh, I think this game sort of got away with it. It wasn't a 4-1 game. But it's just interesting that um, Gary Mabbott says about that game. I mean, Leeds Stadium, Ellen Road, has got one massive great cantilever stand and then three smaller stands. But Everton had the allocation of the three smaller stands and we had the big stand. And Gary Mabbott just felt like the noise made it feel like an away game for us, which is interesting, isn't it, Peter? That is interesting. Yeah, I do remember Mabbott's comments about it. It just didn't seem fair. There is a a music story surrounding this particular game. It's one of those if-only moments. One of the um, the music executives at London Records, who was working under Pete Tong at the time, who's a massive gooner, actually, but the, the, his assistant, Phil Howells, was a big Spurs fan, and, he, and I'd just done a record for them, and he'd asked, he'd asked me to have a bash at a cup final song. So uh, me and my co-writer, Ben Roberts, gave it our due diligence and wrote down ideas and began to build up a music track. With most of the work done, I took the afternoon off and uh, one of these peculiar things in my psyche, I decided not to watch the game for some, whatever reason. I took an afternoon break, it was a nice day, and I, I went off into the countryside trying to avoid the score. Later that afternoon, there was like uh, several messages that I returned to from Ben saying, have you seen the score? <laughs> so did I did <laughs> Scrap, scrap it all. I was, I was gutted. Uh, I'd have had Klinsman, um, I'd have had Klinsman, Sheringham, Barnby, Anderson, all in the studio giving him, oh, bo- giving him vocal direction. Possibly next podcast you could bring the lyrics to the pod. Do you think? Well, they were probably. I mean, we were trying to get away from that Chaz and Dave sort of sound. I think I might have cannibalised that music track into another song. Actually, <laughs> that week, I mean, I was going to get you them in. To do it. I was going to get them in to do the vocal, and I was just. One of those, you know, one of those moments where you know, it was just sort of uh, snatched away from you. Anyway, guys, it's been really, really good to trawl through this season, 94-95. So, as ever, we go around the table and say, can we sum it up in a couple of words? James, how would you sum up 94-95 season? I would sum it up around our dealers being sacked. And I would say, he's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. <laughs> I love that. I really do like that. <laughs> like that a lot like that a lot Sim how would you sum it up I think just wonderful just having a player like Jürgen Klinsmann at the lane I mean he did come back for that six months didn't he but just there for a, a year they ran out of ends in the shop oh did they no I didn't know that yeah, yeah he's so really interesting apparently yeah. oh, that's really funny Peter how would you sum up the season I'll pluck the positives out of that and say Klinsmania 
because I think I had Glynsmania at the time. Nice. I love it. Yeah. Clinsmania, I love it. I think that's a really, really good one. Well, guys, thanks for joining us on this tour through this interesting, very interesting roller coaster of a season. James, thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed it. Cheers, James. Total pleasure. Loved it. Thanks, guys. Hopefully, you can come back tomorrow and uh, record with us uh, the season 93-94. Sim, thank you for your great research, especially your uh, newfound uh, research on celebrities. That's been really, really great. So, keep well, guys. <laughs> Well, guys, and everyone, all our listeners, keep safe and see you all tomorrow. Thank you, guys. Bye. See you soon. Bye-bye.